I'm Brittany Hardin-Tangway, a manager with KPMG, and I am fascinated by the practice of transfer pricing and its impact on the global market. Join me each episode as I explore the transfer pricing world with specialists who will explain the ins and outs of this niche practice where tax meets economics. In a previous episode, we asked the question, are there financial transactions outside of financial services industries? Which we learned absolutely, yes, everybody borrows. Regardless of the industry size or regions where the entities within a multinational enterprise operate, it's entirely feasible for there to be cross-border intercompany financing transactions, such as loans, all of which need to be priced appropriately. That sounds great, but the next question that you might be asking yourself is, how? How do we go about analyzing financial transactions? How can you determine and benchmark a credit rating for a company that may not have one for an intercompany loan that is not made available on the open market? How this is done is important because if the price of the loan isn't arm's length, then profits could be easily shifted, significantly distorting tax payments. Getting this right and keeping track of all these transactions and the appropriateness of each can be a burden not only for multinational enterprises' tax departments, but also their treasury functions. To help us better understand and keep all of these nuances straight, I've invited back Bob Clare, Managing Director with Washington National Tax. Hello, everybody. As well as Shantini Gauche, Principal in Washington National Tax. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Brittany. Although it seems the pricing and terms for loans may come fairly standard, in reality, there are a lot of comparability factors that ought to be considered that can vary the potential outcomes, requiring a lot of work to be done for each transaction. Exactly, Brittany. It's very difficult to explain at times if the taxpayer is not very well versed in this area to explain Yes, we are doing 10 loans for you, but I am not going to be necessarily using the same search for your 10 loans. Each one will be a unique analysis looking at the credit rating. When was the loan issued? How did the market look at that time? And then factor in all the other things that are featured in the agreement to come up with the range. There's no off-the-shelf benchmark that's easily accessible for these kind of transactions. The other thing which I find fascinating and interesting here is the involvement of the Treasury. Most multinational companies have a pretty strong and active Treasury Department. Now, some of them may be well-versed with transfer pricing, but most of them have a more of a business hat in this role. Like, all right, I'm borrowing at 4%. My entity in Singapore needs money. So I can just lend money at four and a half percent. And it makes perfect business sense that you're keeping some spread at, say, U.S. if U.S. was the parent and then on lending the funds there to Singapore at four and a half. But it's not necessarily meeting all the transfer pricing requirements. So there can be an inherent tension between the tax and the treasury teams when the treasury is handling and planning all these loans And the tax department comes later on to see if these transactions can be supported to be meeting the transfer pricing requirements. Maybe the Singapore entity had a very weak credit rating and therefore the interest rate should have been 6% and not 4.5%. And the IRS might come in and say, you didn't charge enough. So this tension can be a little bit of a hurdle in some companies. And then there are other companies 
where the tax and treasury are so well synchronized that they're always communicating. And whenever the treasury is planning on a funding transaction, they're involving tax ahead to say, hey, let's make sure this is an arm's length pricing. So this is another unique factor which you don't always see in other transactions, but it's very, very critical for financial transactions. I think the issue that I'd add is that generally speaking, the people in the treasury groups tend to think from the multinationals perspective on a global basis and often aren't aware of some of the tax issues that can come up as a result. What are some of those tax issues, Bob, that could come up as a result of thinking perhaps too globally about the business? I imagine that the differences in tax rates and how different tax authorities handle interest deductions may have something to do with it. There's a rich finance literature about, well, how much debt should a company have? If I fund myself to some degree with debt, I'm going to get a deduction of interest expense that I can take on. But the offsetting aspect is by operating with debt, I've increased the likelihood of a bankruptcy Hmm. because I'm going to have more debt, less equity proportionately. If I got hit with a big loss, maybe it could actually drive me to become insolvent. And one of the challenges is that tax jurisdictions with high tax rates are going to be the ones with taxpayers who say, well, your tax rate is so high, it encourages me to take on more debt because it's a deductible expense. At the same time, the tax authority looks at it and says, well, you're trying to find a way to pay less tax in my jurisdiction. And they say, well, yes, that's because you have a very high tax rate. So yeah, it's <laughs> logical that, I, that if I'm going to bear debt anywhere, I would want to bear it here where I get the biggest deduction for it, let's say. But you can't run on losses forever. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep where we started with this, Brittany. Everybody borrows, right? <laughs> I know it's upsetting for you, but even parties who don't have any related party transactions also borrowed, so they get their interest expense deductions. But it is why we see things like some of the tax reforms that we've seen recently under base erosion profit shifting is to say tax authorities are setting more often limits on just how much interest expense one can deduct. Bob, maybe it's worth mentioning that the whole analysis that we have been talking about all this time is performed after we assume that this transaction is going to be treated as debt. So before this, there could be another layer of analysis, Brittany, where we actually look into the transaction to say, would a third party actually have lent this money to this borrower? Does it have the capacity to raise these funds from an unrelated lender and service it and pay down at maturity or refinance it at maturity. And that's a whole different tax section in the U.S., which is under Section 385, discussing the debt versus equity characterization of any financing transaction. So that's probably topic for another podcast. (laughs) Let's add that to the list of interesting topics to cover. Debt and equity characterizations and financing transactions. (laughs) Maybe we can call it, dude, where's my debt? (laughs) So that last point, which we'll have another big podcast on at some point, probably, which is what some people call the thin cap problem. Are you thinly capitalized? But just in a sort of bullet point summary of it, if for some reason, the tax authority prevails and says that debt isn't really debt, that means not only has one party lost all of their interest expense that would have been deducted from that debt, but we're going to treat it as if that was equity. And therefore, the payment back was dividend. And in a lot of jurisdictions, your dividends get hit with withholding tax. 
So you suddenly went from having to worry about whether I was going to get my deduction to now being, and you didn't do the withholding tax on that. The tax authorities have the power to restate the transaction into something that they see as more rational, commercially rational. And that's essentially at the founding of this concept of you have a dead instrument, but maybe it's not going to be respected as such. Bob, any closing thoughts? One of the challenges in doing the credit analysis and coming up with a credit rating is that loans need to be judged based upon where the borrower is going to be in the future. And in the case of loans, we have to come up with a issue as to whether we need to model the financial statement so that we can credit score what they'll be in the future when they have to pay the loan back as opposed to where they are right now. Now, there's sometimes it doesn't matter. If a related party borrower comes in and says, I've got an existing debt, it's coming to maturity, I want to renew it, it's going to be renewed with a related party, so I need to get an arm's length interest rate. Well, in that case, their financial statement as it stands is probably a pretty good estimate of where it's going to be in the future. But more often, we can get brought in with someone saying, I've acquired a new company in a new country, and I want to fund that acquisition with an amount of debt. And how much debt can I put on? How risky will that make it? What will be the debt load and the ability to service that debt load in the future? So you're working much more with projections, which leave you open to the tax authority potentially challenging that the projections were not accurate or they were two rose-colored glasses and such sort of thing. But it becomes very important. I liken this to the problem of, say, you go into your doctor's office and he gives you a heart exam and says, oh, you're looking just fine. And you look at him and you say, okay, great, because my plan is I'm going to go hike the Appalachia Trail next month. And then he's likely to say, oh, whoa, wait a minute. Put you on the treadmill and get your heart rate up just to see what it's going to be like if you actually take on this huge physical challenge of hiking the Appalachia Trail. And the lending point would be is to say, yes, your financial statement looked fine today, but if tomorrow you're adding on 50% more debt than what you have today, that means you're going to have 50% more interest expense. You have enough income to easily service all that extra interest expense. It's like a stress test. got to be done if you're going to come up with an accurate estimate of what you think the riskiness is of lending to someone. Your financial health has its limits based on what it is exactly you intend to do. So I think that's a great analogy. The opposite one is the one that more of our audience might understand, which would be when you come out of school and people start offering you credit cards. Mm. My my history is horrible, right? I've had a job for the last four years. I've been getting a degree or something because they're saying, no, we're looking forward. You just got a good job. Here come the credit card offers because now's the time that, you know, your your whole perspective of how risky you are has changed. (laughs) Well, this is great. Shay Anthony, any closing thoughts? It's not all doom and gloom. There's a (laughs) lot of positive ways of supporting your transaction as debt and setting the right arms like the interest on it. And the world moves on. So we just need to make sure we do all the right diagnostics when we're putting it in place. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, Shaitani, for joining me. This was awesome. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having us, Brittany. Thanks for joining me on this adventure in transfer pricing. See you next time.